All right, how we doing? We good? We good? Good. Good to see you. You look good, and whether you're gathered with us online or in person, we're excited to be gathered. We're actually in week four of our series called Welcome to Our Family. But as I told you last week, this is not just a series, it's also going to become a part of what we're calling our welcome track, which there will be three sessions to that for anybody that is new to our church or new to our family and wants to get involved, wants to take their next step, wants to join a team, wants to join a group, and then eventually wants to join our church, then we're taking these last three weeks of this series and turning it into a welcome track, and there'll be three separate sessions that people actually watch, get information about who our church is, what our mission and vision is. That's what we covered last week. This week, what the role is in the family, and then next week, actually have to uh, how to join the family. So just to kind of bring you up to speed in case you haven't been here, even if you have been, you probably forgot because you got busy lives, the world's on fire, all right? And so you need to be reminded of these things. So we're just talking through what does it mean to be a part of our family? What does it mean to be a part of Revolution Church? In the first two weeks of this series, I just gave you a biblical basis of the understanding of what church is. It is the people of God from all generations, from all time. That's the universal kind of global church. And then that shows up in local churches, the people of God, the family of God. And then we got into some specifics about what our local church is about. Again, we talked about that last week, our mission and vision as a church, who we are, what our core values are, what does it make us us. We even got into some of our family history so that you'll know a little bit about the history of our church. And again, if you didn't get to see that, you can go and watch that message online. And then if you're interested, at the end of this series, you can actually join a team, join a group, or even join our church and become a steward of the local church once we're done with all of this, all right? So we're teaching through this just on a big scale to our entire church, and then we'll take it, package it, and then from this point forward, people will go through this process in the same similar way as you have been listening to it, all right? So I'm praying just a second before we do that, though. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 6, all right, Acts chapter 6, that's where we're going to be today, and one of my favorite sets of scriptures in the Bible because it really encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about, just what discipleship is about, what leadership is about, and from a vision perspective, how we want to multiply because the early church, the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2 when it was started, started growing and had growing pains and had to experience the process of discipleship, the process of leadership, so that they could continue to multiply. And that's what we're going to talk about today, all right? So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into our text, and I'll explain more about your role in the family. Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. And God, as we go through not only the word today, but as we dig into some specifics about uh, next steps as a part of our church, the, the role that you have for us in the local church to, to live life on mission, God, I pray that you would speak to us and show us how not only is this a biblical concept and, and how the New Testament church handled these subjects of what we're going to talk about, discipleship and leadership today, God, but I pray that you would move in our midst in the same type of way, because we do want to accomplish the vision that you have laid out for us um, to multiply greatly, to make disciples of all nations. And so, God, I pray that in the same way as the early church had to figure these things out, and we are working hard to figure these things out, God, I pray that you would give us the same type of fruit. You would give us the same type of results 
in this local church, and not just this one, but all churches. In fact, God, we, we pray for all churches, not just here in America, but in Haiti and Afghanistan and other places that are struggling to do your will, to accomplish this mission that Jesus laid out for them. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in those areas that are struggling, um, that literally face persecutions in ways that we just don't understand in this country. Uh, although, God, we can begin to understand some of what those things are starting to look like. And so, God, I pray for this. I pray, as always, that you would help me to communicate in, the, in a way that honors you and then in a way that is helpful to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in session two of, uh, of this process that we're just calling the welcome track. And this session is about your role in the family. Your role in the family. And I want to start in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, to just look at how the early church dealed with, uh, dealt with some of these processes in the same way that we're trying to deal with them, or I should say, we're trying to deal with them in the way that they dealt with them, because it gives us a model of how to do that, and how discipleship and leadership, and in how your role within the church happens. And so let's look at this story, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then I'll unpack it in some really practical ways for us as a local church here at Revolution. All right, so Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. So verse 1 is just going to give us a context to the story. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So let me stop and chat here for a second. So you see a couple things here in this verse, contextually what's happening. We know in Acts chapter 2, that's at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down in Jerusalem, and literally what Jesus said would happen is happening. The, the, the gospel is going to all the nations. And so there was a bunch of different nations that were there for a feast, and when the Holy Spirit came, over 3,000 people trusted Jesus. And at that point in time, the church was born. And in that moment, you had the new family of Jesus, which is what we call the church, was created. And then you have discipleship begin the process of what we have said, very simply, discipleship is learning to live life in the new family of Jesus. And what you see is it's growing because the will of God is for it to grow, again, to make disciples of all nations. But naturally, when that starts happening, you're going to have problems, right? You're going to have complaints. In fact, it wouldn't be church without complaining. It's the way it is a lot of times, although we'll get into that and now the culture we want to create here at Revolution Church. But a complaint arose. And this complaint arose between two groups of people, what's called the Hellenists or the Hebrews. And so you basically had Greek-speaking Jewish people and then Hebrew-speaking Jewish people. So you had kind of they, they had similar um, backgrounds, but, but culturally different people. But here's what you want to see in the new family of Jesus. And again, I'm going to constantly share a vision of this because I think it's the Bible's heartbeat, is the gospel creates this new family where people from different generations, people from different nations and ethnicities learn how to live together as the new family of Jesus. But that always comes with issues. It always comes with problems. Well, the early church had that. But what I want to point out simply is that they were growing. They were increasing in number. That is the same word that will use later for multiply. 
which we talked last session, is the vision of our church. We want to multiply disciples, campuses, and churches. That is the vision of the church, not just Revolution Church, but I would say biblically should be the vision of every church. That is what God wants for us, and you see a picture of that. But naturally, as that happens, you have to figure things out because problems arise. Well, let's see what they do. Verse 2. And the 12, that's the Jesus's 12 disciples, which I'll reference that later as well, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not right that we should give up the preaching to serve tables. Now, here's what they're not saying. They're not saying that they're unwilling to serve tables. They're not saying that, oh, that's beneath us, or oh, that's important. The, the word here, right, is to be acceptable in the sense of there are some things that we just realize we can't do it all. It's just, it's, it's unacceptable to give up one thing for another thing. And so simply, the disciples were saying, listen, if we have to choose between serving tables or preaching, We've got to choose, pre that's the only acceptable choice, which is helpful to understand by the word give up. I'd have to stop doing this thing in order to start doing this thing. So all this is, is just simply a matter of priorities. And the good thing here is the leaders, the apostles, the 12, prioritized preaching, prioritized the word of God. And the reason why that's a good thing is because it's the preaching of the word of God that leads to people being saved. It's as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, you hear it. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. How can you hear unless someone speaks? So the disciples weren't giving a value statement, simply saying that preaching is better than serving tables because of what you're going to see in a second. Said, no, this is necessary. They're both necessary. But it wouldn't be acceptable or right for us to have to give this up in order to do this. So that's the problem. So ultimately, as the church is growing, the problem is they need more leaders, which any growing church always has that as an issue. Almost always the vision will outpace the leaders that you have to pull it off. And so therefore, a church has to make a decision, okay, are we going to Keep the vision the main thing, which is to multiply this mission of making disciples. If we're going to keep doing that, then there's no way that we can limit our ability to be able to do that without developing more people in the sense of saying, hey, that's so important. We got to figure out how to do this differently. We can't keep preaching and serving tables because God keeps adding more to our number daily, as the Bible said, and we can't give this up for this. So what are we going to do? Look at the next verse, verse three. It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or good reputation, we would say, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, right here, you see the first biblical basis. Well, I wouldn't say the first. Jesus was the first. But you see the church figuring out leadership development. How are we going to develop leaders? 
because there's no way we can keep doing all the work. And we got to choose, and, and someone's got to choose preaching of the word of God, which again, you want the 12 because they're the ones who spent all the time with Jesus. They're the ones who saw him physically resurrected. They're the ones that were commissioned by Jesus, according to Ephesians 4.10, to preach, to minister the word of God. So then they say, hey, here's the, our idea. Look around. We got men here that have some qualifications for leadership. And here's some basic biblical qualifications. They have a good reputation. Other people talk good about them. Are they full of the Holy Spirit? And not just say, but like they full of the Holy Spirit, which means they walk by the Spirit. They put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. They, they are living examples of the Spirit's power in their life. And then thirdly, and this was huge, do they have wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom is simply knowledge applied or understanding applied. And, and those of us who've been around the block a few times understand that the way you get wisdom is like Proverbs says, you get wisdom. That's how you get it. You get it by getting it. And what I mean by that is you get it by experience. And so here's what he's saying. Hey, in order for the church to continue to multiply its mission of making disciples, we have to develop people. We've got to put people in positions of leadership, but here's the kicker. We can't just put anybody in positions of leadership. We can't put people with bad reputations, people that are like a quarter full of the spirit and people that ain't got no wisdom. Why? Because leadership, watch this. He says, you pick them, we'll appoint them. Leadership is a transfer of authority where you're saying you're doing this now on my behalf. And so I got to trust that you would do it the way I would do it, that you would take the authority that Jesus has given to us as disciples. Now we're transferring it to you. And so if you got the same spirit that we got, you got wisdom like we got, you got a good reputation with other people, which means you know, you know how to get along well in the sandbox. It's not all about you. You know how to empower and lead and encourage other people. Then we're going to transfer this leadership to you. Why? So that we can keep preaching, doing the ministry of the word, and you can come alongside of us in ministry and help serve as well. Look at this, verse five. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa. I mean, <laughs> Parmenas. It was a joke. Glad you laughed there, all right? And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And a proselyte just means a convert. So a convert of this other group of people. So they go out and pick seven men. They say, yeah, these men have a good reputation. People speak well of them. They're full of the Holy Spirit. And they've got wisdom. So they pick those seven and then look in verse six and seven. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them, which means they commissioned them. Said, yes, we agree that the Lord is calling you to this. And verse seven, now watch this. Here's the result. And the word of God continued to increase. What does that mean? That means the word was preached and lives were being trans transformed. Disciples were being made. And watch this. 
the number of disciples, what's that next word there? Say it with me. Multiplied greatly. It's almost like that's the Lord's vision. Multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, I always tripped out about this, the last part. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That always just tripped me out. We're talking about Jewish leaders here, all right? Priest of another religion. And this is where you know that the gospel is so powerful, what's converting people out of other religions into Christianity. Not just converting people to Christianity, but converting them out of other things. Converting them out of their family of origin, out of the things that they thought were true that they've come to realize, oh, what only can be true is the dude who rose from the dead, because if he rose from the dead, he's alive today, then everything he said is true. Everything else is a guess. Everything else is a, I hope, I wonder, I don't know if this happens. So it just amazes me when, it, when you see the power of the gospel. Now watch this. Those priests might not have become obedient to the faith if they hadn't figured out the leadership problem over here. Because the apostles would have been taking away from preaching and serving and solving the problems that they were having in between these groups. If they hadn't figured out the leadership problem, then the word wouldn't continue to increase, the disciples wouldn't have continued to multiply, and they might not even have gotten those people. So here's what I want you to see. It is so important for us as a church to continue to focus on the vision and the mission and then figure out how we develop disciples and leaders in order to stay focused on that. So that's the biblical basis for all I'm about to tell you next, all right? So I got seven slides. You're going to have to hang with me here, all right? Seven slides that I'm going to go through some specifics about how we do this here at Revolution Church. So I've given you a biblical basis, a story to help frame out a couple convictions that we have that I'm going to now go through with you. The first is simply this. Before anyone can be a leader, they must first be a disciple. Before anybody can be a leader, they must first be a disciple. Notice how when they go to pick seven guys, their qualifications are not necessarily their giftings. Not necessarily, hey, are these cats gifted in leadership? No. Their qualifications are character-based. Their qualifications are, do they have a good reputation? Do people think that they like being around? Basically what they're saying is, do people think they're jerks? Do they not like being around them? Why would we put somebody in leadership that everybody else that they're about to lead thinks that they're jerks? So it's character. Are they full of the Spirit? What does that mean? Have they had the Holy Spirit transform them from the inside out? Do they have wisdom? Do they have knowledge applied? What is that? Obedience. Are they obedient to the commands of Jesus? So the foundation, watch this, and I'll show you this in a, in a graph form in a second. The foundation of all leadership has to be discipleship. Said another way, the foundation of all leadership gifts has to be character. Because haven't all of us seen people who were gifted in a leadership position but didn't have the character to sustain their gifts? We've all seen people flame out, burn out, 
because they were gifted. They could rally some people. They could communicate. They had what we call charisma, which I don't know if you know this, but charisma comes from the Greek word charis, which means gifts. They had gifts, but they had no fruit. They had no character. And so there's been a lot of people in the world and in the church that have been promoted to leadership and their gifting or their level of leadership far outpaced their character. Let me say it like this. They didn't have the character to uphold or undergird their gifts. So leadership has to first and foremost be based on discipleship. So discipleship is primary. So if that's the case, let me give you our strategy for discipleship. It's real simple. It's simply the strategy of Jesus. And it's the strategy of how Jesus simply ministered. So as we were going through this as a church, we just said, all right, we want to grow people. We've already talked about that. That's our mission. We want people to know the gospel, get connected in relationships, learn to obey, and produce good works. That's, that's the goals we want. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we just said, you know, let's just look at what Jesus did. I mean, it's real revolutionary, right? Real, like, foundational, fundamental, like, mind-blowing stuff. What did Jesus do? So we just broke it down categorically. We'll say, okay, well, Jesus kind of ministered in different sizes of crowds. He ministered to large crowds all the way down to three. So let me show you this graphic that just simply kind of breaks down from a size comparison, our discipleship pathway. That's what we simply are calling it. So you have thousands and hundreds. Those are simply what we call gatherings. So those can be our weekend gatherings where we preach the gospel. That's like the thousands. The hundreds is when we have gatherings off of our weekends. And those we are going to start as a church where we go over specific things like emotional health, financial health, marital health. There's other gatherings that we, that we do like WOCO, like student summer wrap up. So all kinds of different kind of gathering things that we do based upon those sizes. The next one that you see is Jesus sent out people to live life on mission. Interestingly enough, he sent them out even in sometimes before they even knew they were ready to serve. But he knew that you learn as you do. So he sends out the 72. This happens in Luke chapter 10. So for us, once you are a part of our gatherings, then your next step would simply be join a team. Now you may have seen people with our Join it or our serve team shirts on. We got adults, we got kids, we got students, we got production. And on the sleeve is the number 72. If you've wondered what in the mess is that number about, this is where it comes from. Because everybody that has that shirt on is a part of the 72. They're a part of the group of people that Jesus has sent out to live life on mission. And that is a part of their own discipleship. The next one that you see is Jesus spent a lot of time with 12, his 12 disciples. This is when he broke down what he talked about in those larger gatherings. A lot of times because his disciples would pull him over and be like, bro, what did you mean by that? Like you're talking in parables. We have no clue what you're saying. Would you help us? So we have what we call simply community groups. And that's simply where we go back over our messages. Simply using a method we call REAP, R-E-A-P. Read it, read the text, examine it apply it, and then pray and ask the Lord to empower you to obey it. So very simple. And then we also want our groups to live life on mission and bless their neighbors around them. So that's that group of 12. 
Now, the last one, and this is something that is going to be new for us. It's not something we have off the ground yet. It's something we are working on and we will build out organically. And that's the three. And these are gender-based. So one guy discipling three guys, one lady discipling three ladies. And this is where you dig in further into what's going on into your life, where you actually start to develop like a rule of life, saying, here's how I'm living. And, and, and I've said this before, before, but this is not an accountability group per se, but this is more like a disciple group where you get reminded from people and you say, you know what? We're the people of God and this is how we act. And I think you forgot that. I think you forgot that, but I want to remind you. So they're grace-based. They're not guilt-based. And that's why a lot of men especially would never sign up for an accountability group. It's like, why do I want to go to a group and feel bad about myself all the time? As opposed to saying, no, I want to grace you into this. This is Jesus saying to them, come follow me as, as I will make you a, a disciple. This is Paul saying, come follow me as I follow Christ. So very simply, our discipleship pathway is simply the strategy of Jesus. We want to help you be transformed by the power of God in your life. That happens through gatherings, through serving on a team, getting in a group with the 12, and then being discipled in the three. So that's the basic discipleship pathway. So remember I said, in order to be a leader, you have to first be a disciple. So now what I wanna do is show you how discipleship and leadership fit together. Discipleship and leadership fit together here at our church. So I'm going to get two slides to, you, to show you and how they're connected. Here's the first one. On this is kind of a, what we just simply call our leadership pipeline. So you got level one, level two, level three, and you got our staff. So level one is a team member. So when you join the 72 as a team member, that's the level that you're on. And then you move up from there. Then you can become a team leader that's over team members so now you're leading others. Then you become a coach who's over team leaders. Now you're leading leaders. And then from that, our goal is to hire even potential future staff members. But here's the key. Remember I told you the foundation of leadership is discipleship. So let me show you this next slide. So level one is the discipleship pathway. So think about it like this. The higher you go up into leadership, the further you should go into discipleship. The higher you go up in leadership, the further you should go in to discipleship. Why? Because discipleship and leadership are two different things. We've given you on the sides there underneath those words. Discipleship is about the next step of obedience. Discipleship, remember, learning how to live in the new family of Jesus by taking my next step of obedience is simply like, hey, is my life in line with the word? Is my life in line with the word of God? So that's obedience. And that happens through those strategy steps that I just told you about. You come to our gatherings. You're learning about the word of God. You come to our smaller gatherings. You learn how to get emotionally healthy, financially healthy, marital, relationally healthy. Then you step into the next thing where you start to serve around people. and like, oh, these are my people. This is how we do things. Then you step into the 12 and you're going over the messages. You're praying for each other. You're encouraging each other. Then you get into that discipleship group where you're actually doing more life on life with somebody that's a lot more actively involved in your life and checking in on you and making sure you haven't forgotten who you are. So that's the discipleship process. You with me? 
Well, if I don't go further into discipleship, but I go further up into leadership, I'm setting myself up for a fall. Which is why in Acts chapter 6, the disciples said, hey, go find some men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and with wisdom. Why? Because leadership, watch this, is about the next step of sacrifice. It's about the next step of sacrifice. See, on level one, I'm learning how to lead myself. That's what discipleship is. But when I step up into level two, I am now learning how to lead others. Well, guess what? Others are looking at me. Others are, we just call this parenting too, right? Because monkey see, monkey do. They're going to do what you do. So guess what? That requires sacrifice, which I'll get into this more in just a second. So no more just doing what you want. Now you have to do what you need to do in order to get what you want. Because you don't get what you want by just doing what you want. Now you think, oh, there are people watching me. So what I say, how I act, watch this one. What I post online, I don't just get to fly off the, we say fly off the handle. Now it's just fly off with your thumbs. I'm like, well, I told them. Well, guess what? Leaders don't get to do that anymore. Why? Because it's about sacrifice. You know how many times I've wanted to say something and I didn't? I'm like, no, I'm a leader. I can't do that. And then you move up where you're leading leaders. And think about it like this as a pastor, and I'll show you this pyramid in just a second. But I get paid to be holy. Think about that. Now, I don't want to be holy as a pastor because I'm getting paid. Let me clarify. But no one would follow me as a leader if they weren't seeing the sacrifices I was making in order to be holy. You with me when I say that? Because everybody would say, well, you preach it. You ask us to do it, but you don't do it. You ask us to believe this, but you don't believe it. You ask us to live like this, but you don't do it. This is why I've never asked you to do something that I'm not trying to do myself. In fact, I try to lead out in everything that I ask you to do because that's what leadership requires. It requires sacrifice. Think about this. In fact, if you read on in the book of Acts, Stephen is about to make a huge sacrifice with his life. He's about to be the first martyr. The first person that was killed for his faith. And he was the first one that they picked. Why? Because when you stand up and be a leader, now you got a target on your back. And that's why you better have character. So think about that graph. Discipleship is fruit. Leadership is gifts. But here's what I want you to hear me say. We're all leaders. The question is not whether God has leadership positions for you. It's just at what level. Jesus said it like this in the parable of the town. Some one, some five, some ten. So there's just different leadership levels, but the higher you go up, the more sacrifice it requires. So what we do here at our church is, again, just trying to fulfill what happened in Acts chapter 6. But here's the coolest thing that I want you to see. When we put these things together, what I'd never want you to think as a church, because we had that stair step thing, is that the top of that pyramid of importance is the staff. No. 
In fact, at Revolution, we flipped the funnel. Let me show you what I mean by this. We just simply call this the pyramid of empowerment. This may change later on, but I couldn't think of a better name. Back when I was a student pastor, I called it the pyramid of love. That kind of sounds weird now, so we went with pyramid of empowerment. But here's the point. Staff is at the bottom. Coaches are above that. Team leaders above that. Team members. So what we're simply saying is our team members are our front lines. And as staff, we want to come alongside and support and serve our coaches. Then we want our coaches to stand alongside and support our team leaders, our team leaders to come alongside and support our team members, our team members to come along and support our disciples. Because that's the model of leadership that Jesus gave. Jesus said, if you want to be great, if you want to be a leader, be a servant. So as a staff, our job is not to be at the top of some ladder but to be at the bottom. And that's what leadership is. Again, it's about sacrifice. So here's the good news is what I'm getting at. We want to empower you, Ephesians chapter four, to do the work of ministry. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.10. He gave some apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we believe every single one of you are called to leadership at some capacity. We believe every single one of you, God has leadership gifts in, and we want to come alongside you and help you develop it. Why? So that the vision can continue to multiply. So there's two parts to that. First, be a disciple of Jesus. Be discipled through the process. And then when people come and tap you on the shoulder and say, man, you should think about being a team member. You should think about being a team leader. He said, man, I don't know if I'm qualified to do that. I think that response almost always is actually what qualifies you. It's always the people who walk up to us and be like, I'm going to be a leader in this church. I'm like, oh, you'll never be a leader here. I mean, I've had people come up and say, man, how do I do what you do? I want to preach in this church. I'm like, oh, sucker, you don't know what you're asking for. And what we always say to them first is go clean the toilets. Then we'll see if you're able to preach. If you're not willing to clean the toilets or serve, uh, pick up trash or serve in the parking lot or hold a baby, then you're not qualified because that's where we start. But we want to empower you to do it. So I got a couple more slides for you. I know you love the slides. Just how we're trying to live out this Acts chapter six vision to multiply. Now, the last three slides are a part of one category. And here's what I mean. We've talked about disciples. We've talked about leaders. One thing that I've realized in leading in church world for over 20 years now, I used to think that just preaching the mission and vision was enough. If I just hammer down preaching the mission and the vision, everybody would know how to act. Everybody would know this is what we do. This is how we do things. Until I realized, as somebody once told me, Culture will eat your vision for lunch. You can have a vision for your family, but if you let your kids act like hoodlums, the vision ain't happening, right? You can have a vision for your marriage, but you don't have a culture that actually supports that. The vision for your marriage ain't happening. You can have a vision for your business, a vision for whatever it is that you feel like God wants you to do. If you don't have a culture that supports that, the vision ain't happening. So what I want to give you now is simply 12 statements that we're simply calling our family culture statements. And these 12 things are very simply 
how we want our people as a church to act, how we want to think and how we want to act. We want this to be true of the culture of our church, of all of our disciples and leaders and staff. So let me give you these 12 things. Number one, we sow, God grows. We sow, God grows. What I mean by that is this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So it's an understanding of this. God has called us to obedience, but the fruit is up to him. I can't make anything grow. You can't make anything grow. But what we can do is we can sow. I don't know if you've noticed, but every year we produce simply what we call a grow report. That's our way of saying an annual report. This is what God has grown. And our goal necessarily isn't to just grow numerically year over year exponentially. Growth at all costs. And in fact, in 11 years of leading our church, I've never once set an attendance goal. Because it's not about growing big. It's about being faithful. Just sowing. All we've done is sowed. How big it gets, the fruit that happens, that's up to God because God's the one that grows it. But you know how freeing that is? In my marriage, all my responsible for is sowing into it. The fruit's up to God. Number two, we get or we focus on the right five letters. I've mentioned this before. This is the statement of simply, it's all about Jesus. J-E-S-U-S. And my joke is my name, Jason, has five letters. So get the right five letters. It's about Jesus. This is Jesus' church. You're Jesus' people. It's not about who's preaching or who's leading. We like to say Jesus is our senior pastor. Number three, we assume the best. This is a big one. This is one of those things that I learned. Christians, a lot of times, are the worst at assuming the worst. This is when something happens with somebody else and you assume the worst about their intentions. Have you ever noticed that you assume the, assume the best about your intentions and the worst about theirs? You have reasons why you did what they did, but there is no excuse for why they did what they did. Have you noticed that? So what we're saying is we do the opposite. You know what you should do? Assume the worst about yourself and assume the best about them. I've had to, these, these are like discipleship statements. Over the years, I've had to tell people, why did you assume the worst about me? And here's what we've, and I've tried to teach our staff this. Hey, if you hear something in our family, here's what you do. You go ask the person for clarifying, for clarification. Hey, can I ask you something? When you said that the other day, did you mean this? Oh, no, man, I didn't mean that. Okay, great. Because I didn't want to assume the worst and then accuse you of something. Now, this right here will revolutionize your marriage, won't it? This will revolutionize every relationship you're in. If you'll just simply assume the best about somebody, ask them, hey, is this what you meant? Because I don't want to assume the worst about you and then go to accuse you. And how do most Christians do that? In the form of prayer requests. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. We don't do that here. We assume the best about others. We ask. We don't assume the worst and then accuse. Fourth one. We say, it's not my trash, but it is my church. It's not my trash, but it is my church. This phrase came about when I was walking down our hallway here in Canton one time, and there was a piece of uh, trash, in fact, a starburst. If you've never been about Rev Kids, you don't know about starbursts, all right? So there was a starburst wrapper on the ground. I turned to my daughter, Natalie, and I said, hey, pick that up. And she said, that's not my trash. 
And then I said to her, yeah, but it is your church. And at that moment, I'm like, oh, that's a statement right there, baby. And what did I, what did I mean by that? I know that's not your trash. But if this is your church, that's your problem. And you should be responsible to pick that trash up. So here's what I want our church to be the kind of church that just walks around and picks up other people's problems. If it ain't your trash, it don't matter. It is your church. And guess what? Every weekend we got guests coming and we want to make sure that they feel welcome. Every week we're trying to disciple people. And so we're going to take personal responsibility. So if I see a door open, a door unlocked, a car, somebody needs help, whether I am commissioned to do it or not, I'm going to take personal responsibility to make sure that it happens. Why? It may not be my trash, but it is my church. Let me go on verse, verse five. Listen to me. I'm preaching now. Number five, we live life on mission. We want disciples and leaders here that live life on mission. Here's one of my favorite phrases. We don't have a missions department here at Revolution Church. That's like the Falcons saying they have a football department. Now, you can debate whether or not they do. But isn't football what they do? So it always amazed me when I went to church and they're like, oh, yeah, we got a missions department. What is that? Oh, you know, there's people in our church that go on mission trips. And we give money every year. Lottie Moon. Missions. Now, is Lottie Moon offering bad? Heck no. It's awesome. Love it. But the problem is we can relegate the mission of the church to a select few. And what we're saying is, no, 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 no. We want everybody to live life on mission. We want kids to live life on mission. That's why we had the life on mission opportunity this summer where they raised money for Goshen Valley. We want our students living life on mission. We want our adults living life on mission. Why? Because we live life on mission. Number six, uh, oh, I forgot number five. Look at that. I got him out of order here. We are a family of nations and generations. We are a family of nations and generations. Here's what I mean by that. We already saw this in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Hellenists, Hebrews, living together, new family of Jesus. The church should reflect all nations and all generations. So we are a church that says, hey, it is a value for us. It is a cultural value. We want people of different races and different ages living together in the new family of Jesus. And, and, and all we're simply saying is you have a problem with that. Number one, you're going to have a problem with heaven. But number two, you're going to have a problem with our church. Because we want to be a church, a family that is made up of nations and generations. Number seven, we don't get what we want by doing what we want. We use this all the time in pastoral care. If you come to pastoral care, you're going to hear this phrase. Because people are come in, they want a good marriage. They're not getting it. Why? Because they're doing what they want. But we don't get what we want by doing what we want. Here's the key phrase. We get what we want by doing what we need to do to get what we want. So we have a simple phrase where we, okay, right in a circle. What do you want? I want to have a life-giving marriage. Okay, what are four things you need to do in order to get that? We, we need to talk every day. We need to fight differently. We need to go on dates. We need to encourage each other. Whatever the four are. Okay, here's the cool thing. Do those four things, you're going to get what you want. That's how it works. It's that simple. This is simply the process of spiritual disciplines. I don't watch. I said this earlier. I don't get holy by doing what I want. Don't you wish you could eat Cinnabons all day and lose weight? 
but you don't get what you want by doing what you want. You see the connection? That's a value for us. Number eight, we know the only thing that never changes is that things are always changing. I wanted to make sure we put this one in there because I've said this before. The problem with church world is we fall in love with how we do things. What we're saying as a church is saying, hey, things are always changing around here. I mean, you, we are part of a family called revolution, which means sudden marked change. So we're going to make changes. We're going to change gathering times. We're going to change gathering days, probably. I mean, we had no clue if a Thursday night would work. Let's try it. No clue if a Saturday night. We did that for years. Sunday night, we did that one for a while. We got no clue if it's going to work. But guess what? We're going to try it because we're willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish the mission. Number nine, we run on joy. We run on joy around here. Um, just been doing a lot of brain science, and the idea of it is we have two primary emotions we run on, joy and fear. Well, God gave you a fear emotion. This is the fight or flight response. Because if you walk into the woods and a, a lion comes out at you or a tiger comes out at you, a bear, oh my, whatever it is, you need adrenaline to take off running, don't you? You need adrenaline to do something that feels like superhuman. That's fear. Here's the problem. Almost all of our life is lived off of that. Fear. Do you not think that Facebook and social media and the news system is not pre-programming algorithms to gear up your fear response? Yes, they are. The opposite of fear is joy. Is joy. And this is why you have to understand the opposite of faith is not no faith. The opposite of faith is fear. This is why the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. God, was, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit. What is joy? Joy is, I'm happy to be with you. We know in parenting children, if we can make joyful bonds with our children, they will develop into healthy, mature adults. If we have a fear-based approach with our children, they will not. It will literally affect their brain development. So we're the type of church that says, you know what? We run on joy. Guess what? We like to have fun. We like to enjoy what we do. Number nine, or number 10, we walk the generosity journey. You can go on our website right now, hit the give button about halfway down. There's a thing that says generosity journey. You click that and it shows you what it is. What we're simply saying is this. We, God has been generous to us. We're a family that wants to walk that journey of generosity by saying things like this. How can I live on less so that I can be more generous? That's the type of family we want to be. Last two. Number 11, we build up the body, the body of Christ. We build up the body. It amazes me how quickly the body of Christ can tear itself down. That's like the arm punching itself in the face. You want to know why the church is so beat up? Almost always, it's not because of someone outside the body. It's because someone in the body is beating up the body. We don't do that here. We build up. We don't tear down. I can deconstruct something in a day and it takes me six months to build the same thing. Constructing is hard work. So we would rather build up. Ephesians 4, use our words wisely to build up. We don't tear down. We don't gossip around here. I tell our staff all the time, listen, staff members do not talk to staff members about staff members. I'll go a step further. Team members do not talk to team members about team members. It's amazing to me when people come to me and say, you know what? A lot of people have been talking. They've been telling me about you. Oh, they have. 
The problem is you've been listening to them, sucker. Why didn't you tell them to come tell me and say, I don't listen to that here? That right there would solve almost 95% of all problems, wouldn't it? So I told our staff, hey, if, I want you to hear me. If you come and complain to our staff, I have told our staff not to listen. Why? Now, by complain, I mean, you know, Pastor David, I really need to talk to you about Jason. Well, have you talked to Jason about Jason? No. Well, guess what? You need to go talk to Jason about Jason because you don't talk to David about Jason. Very simple. Matthew 18. It's almost like it's biblical. Last one, number 12. We pursue emotional health. We pursue emotional health. This is about living integrated lives. We want to be the type of people that are healthy, that have a rhythm of being with Jesus, and then out of that, working with Jesus. Now, think of number 12 all the way back to number one. If you can remember, we sow, God grows. See, we sow, God grows is an emotionally healthy statement. What I mean by that is this. It's not my responsibility to grow your life. It's not my responsibility to grow this church. It's my responsibility to lead it faithfully. I don't have to take on a burden that God didn't give me. What I do have to take on is my responsibility to sow faithfully. So guess what? I can sow and I can sleep, baby. Right? How many times have you heard me say, trust Jesus and take a what? Take a nap. You need to get better at napping. You need to get better at sowing and sleeping. Sow into your marriage and sleep. Sow into your personal life and sleep. Because we know this. God does all the restorative work when we're resting. Well, if you don't know how to rest, guess what? You're not getting healed. So we pursue emotional health. So those are the 12 statements that we want to be true about our family, our cultural statements. Here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're in a family, go home and have a conversation. What are some cultural statements that we want to have? I kind of like that, assume the best about each other, because I'm really tired of assuming the worst about you. I think we should try that. You know what? I really like that whole sew, sew and sleep thing. That sounds awesome. I would encourage you to do this. Why? Because you're responsible for your family. Let me leave you this last verse, and then we're done. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. It says this. This is Paul speaking to the Galatians. He says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The reason why I've told you all this, the reason why I've talked about discipleship, I've talked about leadership, I've talked about cultural statements saying we don't do things like that here. Here's what we do. Why? Because our ultimate goal is for Christ to be formed in you. But notice the words he used. He says, first, my little children, which is a term of affection, and then he says, I'm in the anguish of childbirth. Now, I haven't been in the anguish of childbirth, but I've heard it and seen it with my own eyes. The childbirther is here. And that is a painful process. Why? Because leadership is about sacrifice. It's going to take sacrifice. It's, a pro it's painful, man. 
But if I can sow into that painful process, I will reap the peaceful fruit. And so the reason why I'm saying this to you is because I want us to be the type of church where you're formed into the image of Christ. You say, well, how do we do that? You go through this discipleship process. So two things out of this session. We want you to join the team. Join the 72, man. And after this, you'll have an opportunity to join the team. You can do that online. Then we want you to join a group where you're getting to know people in our church and we're living out these values of one anothering in the body of Christ, in the local church. And if we do that, Christ will be formed in us. If we'll go through this discipleship process, if we'll allow the Lord to develop us, then we will, guess what? Give birth to more disciples. We will give birth to fruit in our life. We will give birth, or better yet, I would say God will give birth to these things in our life. And one day you'll look up and you're like, wow, I didn't fly off the handle. I didn't cuss her out. I didn't pray that God would kill her in my prayers. Don't act like you haven't done that. Why? Because you're growing. And that's what we want for you. We want you to be a part of this family and take this next step. Why? Because that's your role in this family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace in our life. God, we thank you for this model that we see in Acts chapter 6 where the disciples empowered people, common, ordinary, everyday people to do the work of ministry. But they chose people based upon character, based upon a discipleship process where they were living their lives in line with Jesus. And that's what all this information is about. So God, I pray that you would make disciples here, that you would form Christ in people. You would give birth to transformation in their life. As they walk this strategy step, as they sit under the preaching of the word of God, as they get involved with people in serving, as they join a group and start living in the words that we preach and they are getting discipled by others. God, I pray that you would birth Christ in us. You would birth the character and wisdom and nature of Christ in us. But God, we know that can't happen if we first don't know Jesus. So we pray right now for anybody who hasn't trusted Jesus, that you would lead them right now to say yes to him. No one looking around or talking here as we close as always. If you've never trusted Jesus, very simply, you can pray and trust Jesus, be saved, be a part of this new family called the church. So if that's you, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me. Forgive me for what I've done wrong. I'm trusting in Jesus alone to save me. Thank you for loving me. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking if you're online as well. If you just trusted Jesus, two things. One, if you're in person, you can just simply lift your hand up so we can see you. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand. If you're online, you can simply click the button. We have a digital connection card you can fill out. 
give us your information so we can follow up with you. And then those of us who have trusted Jesus, I just want to encourage you to take your next step of obedience. Maybe you haven't joined a team. That's your next step. Maybe you haven't been baptized. That's your next step. Maybe you need to get in community with other people that are looking at your life and literally helping you, reminding you of who we are and how we live. Maybe God's calling you to a new leadership position. And God's saying, yeah, it's going to require sacrifice. You got to step up and lead in this area, not just in the church, but outside the church, in your business, in your home. But God will give you the grace to do that. I believe it. Father, I pray that you would continue to form Christ in us and then multiply that into more people because that is what the world needs. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.